All your favorite CBC podcasts are now available on YouTube. The best in award-winning true crime investigations, hilarious comedies, vibrant pop culture conversations, and even more audio series are all available on CBC Podcast's YouTube channel. You'll also find exclusive video first episodes, YouTube shorts, and behind-the-scenes content from our hosts and producers that you can't find anywhere else. So if YouTube is your go-to source for podcasts, just search CBC Podcasts and hit subscribe, and you'll never miss the latest update. This is a CBC Podcast. Peter Garrett from the band Midnight Oil is not your average rock star. I mean, sure, he has the gold records and he's toured to millions of people and all that. But he's also been a lobbyist for environmental groups. He's even served as Australia's environment minister. Peter's built a career out of weaving those two worlds together. And he's here to talk about the ways that art can and can't help solve the climate crisis. That's coming up. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You know, more and more artists, understandably, are looking at the world around them and asking themselves not just like, how can we change things, but what can they do in their own work to cause less harm, in particular around climate change? So for that first part, how can we change things, that's nothing new to the Australian band Midnight Oil. Just take a listen to this. Unbelievable song, by the way. Midnight oil and beds are burning. Um, how about that second point, though? How can we cause less harm? We caught up with Midnight Oil in the middle of their final tour ever, and, and that gets to that. But they'd also just released a new album called Resist, and that's why I was speaking with their lead singer, Peter Garrett, who's not just a rock star. I mean, as I mentioned, president of the Australian Conservation Foundation for a bunch of years, quit Midnight Oil for a while to be elected as Australia's Minister of Environment, Heritage, and the Arts. It's no exaggeration to say that the earth and its protection has been most of Peter's life's work. So you're going to hear someone who has thought a lot about the balance between making a living from your art and working to save the planet and whether those two things are even compatible at all. Here's my conversation with Peter Garrett. How are you? Hey, Tom. Uh, well, it's good to talk to you. I'm well, thank you. I, I lost, hold on, I lost you there. I think it's, it's, the, it's the internet uh, yeah. out, across the world, by the way, is what we're trying to do here right now. Um, and also, I love I love the big introduction I gave you, but all the things you've done, and just the, the life of a musician is that we're still talking to you in a hotel on the road. Yeah, no, totally. <laughs> Some things never change. Congrats on the new record. Oh, thank you. I mean, uh, as you said in your intro, Tom, we we are going to phase out this part of the Oz career, the the touring part of it. We've been doing it for a very long time, and uh, we just feel that now's the right moment to as it were, wind down, uh, you know, the planes, the trains, the automobiles and so on and so forth. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we've got uh, a record that we did uh, record back a little while, which is pretty much as strong as anything we've ever done and I think uh, particularly speaks to the times that we're in and especially around the climate crisis and, of course, it's called Resist, as you said. And we're in good form and uh, we're out and about playing and, um, yeah, pushing as hard as we can as ever. Can you tell me about Rising Seas, the song we heard? Well, it's pretty self-evident in, in some ways, uh, in, in as much as when we regrouped after I'd spent my time in the parliament, we actually came and played uh, around the world and found that there were, luckily for us, plenty of people coming back out to listen to, to see the band. We just thought we'll tip some songs into the ring and see what we have. And uh, out of that 
came a bunch of different songs and the, the second tranche that's been released are essentially songs which have got a very strong climate and or um, social focus, which is, I guess is typical for us. But for Rising Seas, it's really um, saying, you know, for every one centimetre of sea level rise that we get, we get about a metre of coastal incursion and that in our part of the world particularly, I'm not so sure about your east coast or west coast, but for our part of the world, uh, that means that um, the, the many of us will see seawater incursion uh, into our homes. We're already seeing it actually in, in parts of the coast in our lifetime and for countries like Bangladesh and low-lying parts of Southeast Asia. I mean, people know this stuff, but uh, we still wanted to write a song about it and, um, and point out that we need to do something about it. The album, I think, you know, Tom, we're not the sort of people that talk a lot about our work, but I think in this instance, having been on the road, having worked in so many different capacities around environment issues and just watched this global revolution and increasing awareness in, you know, what we're doing with heating up the planet and how we need to treat the earth and so on and so forth, I think we, we, we're not winding down our, um, our advocacy or lessening the strength of what it is we want to say. We're probably increasing it about as far as we can until people just hit the off button, you know. Was, was that the goal from the beginning? Uh, in some ways, probably not. You know, I think the goal in the beginning is just to survive um, and and make make your way with music. And in a way, we were picking up on social and political issues as we went through. Some of your listeners will know the period uh, when which where we really reflected a lot about our own country's indigenous history and culture, uh, diesel and dust and beds are burning and the like. Yeah, we we have a little bit of that. Just play a little bit of that. That, of course, is Beds Are Burning by Midnight Oil. I have, I mean, I, I had to play it. I was a bit nervous to play that in front of you, by the way. No, that's okay. I mean, I think the thing is that, you know, we had an opportunity to travel into uh, remote parts of our own country and to experience how Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people lived. Uh, we reflected that in our music. Uh, from the start, though, I think we were, we were just essentially bits of blotting paper, you know, five little bits of blotting paper running in, in, in a van, you know, running up and down the coast of Australia, in and out of pubs and hotels and whatever it might be, but not particularly bewitched by bright lights. Over time, that, that's cohered into something uh, that's probably a little bit more focused, particularly by the time we get to a record like uh, the ones that we're making now, uh, because we've got the benefit of hindsight and we can look back and, and see hey, hang on a minute, we, we were talking about some of these things 5, 10, 15, 20, even 30 years ago, and we're not moving fast enough. We're not getting enough done. Maybe we need to, A, step up uh, ourselves in terms of our music making and our songwriting craft, but also maybe, you know, uh, as people and as a community, and as, we're essentially baby boomers, you know, so we've had it good up to now, but we need to step up as well and we find whatever way we can to do that. When, when the Beds Are Burning song takes off around the world. A song, I mean, I don't have to tell you about, you know, Canada's current moment of reckoning around um, uh, indigeneity, around indigenous issues, around, in, around truth and reconciliation. When you have yeah. a song that comes from something so personal to you and something so personal to, to Australia, and it blows up sort of all around the world, 
how is that for you? Because it it, it it can't. It's not like a. It's not. It can't be the same as she loves you blowing up, or I want to hold your hand blowing up. You know. No, you're right, and 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 I mean, sometimes people didn't really fully understand what the song was about. You know, they 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 listened a bit to the melody. They they went with the rhythm of the music and what have you, and so. Um, it's not necessarily till much later on someone might come along and say, "Oh, okay, that song was actually about uh, indigenous land rights," you know. And you were you were looking for a, almost a revolutionary transformation in the way that, as you are in Canada, in the way in which we interact with and, and respect um, our first peoples. Uh, the second part of the answer is that nothing nothing prepares you for it, so because <laughs> you don't know when you're going to get a song up at all, and so you've just got to ride the wave. And I think. We're not overanalyzing what happens to us on the way through. We're always just sort of trying to peek over the over the top of the wave and see where the next one's coming and where it might take us. But I do know that that song certainly you can see we can see now that it certainly did help people, particularly younger Australians, wrap their minds around that issue a little bit. And I think when popular culture grabs something, if it does it in a genuine way, not in a superficial way or mechanistic way then it, so it sort of sizzles the mix a little bit more when people are, are talking about it either, you know, uh, socially in, online or in schoolrooms or in pubs and bars or whatever. I haven't met too many musicians. Uh, there's a couple here in Canada, actually. But I haven't met too many musicians who go on to join the government, who go on to become, you know, ministers. Charlie Angus is an example of someone in Canada who was a kind of a young punk social songwriter. He was involved with the Catholic worker movement with uh, Dorothy Day. Now he's involved with the NDP, uh, sort of the the um, more left wing party in Canada. Yeah. And then um, can you talk me through I probably I know you probably told it a million times, but can you talk me through the decision to not play music, but to to join to become a member of parliament? Well, I think it was just the logical expression of, of everything that had happened up to that point, both in the band but, but equally um, through a period of activism and a decade heading up one of the big environment organisations in the country. And, it, and really there's a period in that where it's clear that I'm torn between those two and probably not doing as great a job with the oils as I could have. Uh, it's, not a, it's not like scratching the itch, but it's also recognising that a lot of our effort was aimed really essentially at, at, at getting into to, to get governments to change their mind about things or to you know, be sensible about policies or spend money in budgets or whatever it might be. And I had spent a lot of time uh, as a lobbyist, uh, essentially an environmental lobbyist in Canberra prior to the period of entering the parliament. I had strong connections with the Labor parties like a Social Democrat party. And if the opportunity came around, I thought it would be something that I would uh, give my best shot. Probably happened a bit late, to be honest. Although I did spend um, two terms in government, I actually ended up as the as the um, environment and, and uh, education and youth affairs minister, amongst other things. And I, I had a bunch of different portfolios. But uh, also, I'm a lawyer by training. You know, I mean, the, the, if you're looking for the creativity in the band, you probably have to partly look <laughs> in other places. All right. Well, t- well, tell me this: <laughs> like, what pressure then do you feel to, or what responsibility maybe do you feel? to enact the kind of change that you were singing about years before in your band? Oh, in some ways quite a lot, and in some ways um, it's not so relevant. I mean, the two things are very different. And there are, there are many, many pathways, you know, to the top of the mountain. Um, at some point you need a government to do something. Um, governments will, will operate within their best capacity. Sometimes they fail, and I certainly had my share of failures, but I had my share of successes. 
and there were some things that were important to me that I was able to affect, and there were others that were important to me that I was not able to affect. But I understood the political process. I wasn't going in in some hero, you know, putting down his guitar or his mic stand and threatening to storm the government and take it over and, and lead it down Midnight Oil's agenda. I mean, we're a band of musicians. Uh, political parties have got responsibilities for people that don't vote for them as well as people that do. We've got to stop the country from going broke, or they should be doing that. They've got to prepare the country for the future. They've got to make sure kids are well-educated, the system works, you know, all that, all that sort of bread and butter things which are incredibly important to people. So if you find yourself in the middle of that, it's a lot different from being an advocate on a stage. I mean, I love both roles and having an opportunity to essentially run the country and the Cabinet for, um, you know, two terms was an incredible privilege for me. And I don't decry politics for in the way that other people do, although I certainly think that politics should be a lot better than it is. Talk to me about what you were talking about earlier, the idea of inspiring change as, an, as, as a musician versus inspiring change mm-hmm. as a politician. Look, Tom, I think the key thing here, and this is, this is my reflection and it's a personal reflection, but it comes about from many, many years of doing this stuff, is that it's not enough for us, whether we're artists or citizens or bricklayers or bus drivers, to simply mouth the, the cliche that we don't like what we're doing to the climate and something should be done about it, but, you know, grumpy, grumpy. Um, you know, where's my red wine? And for artists, it's not enough to, to, to bathe in the luxury of, of the free expression that we have um, and, and, and create work, whether it's songs or visual work or whatever it might be, which reflects that and let it go at that. I mean, I think that's good when that happens and I think, you know, people who are really good artists can produce work which affects people and you might go to a gallery and you might see a digit, young digital artist who's completely charged up on this and you might walk out going, you know, wow, that, was, that work was strong. It really moved me. But both the artist and the person consuming that work has to take it to the next level. It's the level of citizen action that becomes the most key thing here. And if our governments in our countries, in democracies, which both you and I live in, are not doing that, then we won't solve the problem. And The difficulty here in terms of urgency, of course, as we know, is that it is an urgent problem. It's not something we can keep on putting off into the never-never. So I think artists, where they have the confidence to, and I'm not suggesting everyone can do this, need to step up. But even where they don't have the confidence to be perhaps an advocate or, or out the front line, such as people like myself have done, they can certainly get involved in their own communities. They can certainly, and there would be people, I'm sure, doing this. They can start raising money and helping, you know, people that are protesting against pipelines that shouldn't be built. Uh, they can start thinking about, well, how do, we, how do we reach out further than our artistic audience? I mean, I think this is one of the keys for us as a band. And you, you asked me a question about the early days. In the early days, we got out of the inner city pretty quickly. We got out of the, the comfortable area of our peers who we loved and who liked what we were doing, and we were quite happy to share that. But there was a whole sea of suburbs and, and working Australians that, we wanted to go out and play to. And, you know, we became less cool by doing that for a while, but it was actually the most important thing we ever did in our career. Why? Why, why was that so important? Because you just can't preach to the choir. You know, there's no point in having someone slap you on the back and telling you you're really good at what you're doing because they agree with you when there's another 20 people around the corner who are scratching their head and saying, what's all this about? Um, you have to go out and reach into the heart of, of, of ordinary people. And I, when I say ordinary I don't think they are ordinary, but but what we might call um, people who are not within the, the artistic or musical or cultural milieu. How was now? Maybe I won't ask you about this, but I will. This past summer, the I don't know if you're paying attention too much to. I don't know how much the Canadian news is on your 
on your <laughs> laptop. as much as the Australian uses on yours. <laughs> <laughs> I um well here's here's the thing where they intersected was this past summer, especially in the west coast of this country, we had severe severe wildfires. Um, I think it woke a lot of people who weren't awake to it yet, and God love them, they weren't awake to it yet. Um, but I think I think it inspired. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna harp on anybody for not knowing anything yet, but I think it let them know the reality of the climate emergency. And um, when that happened in Australia, was that was that near you? Like, was that was that close to where you were? I guess what was the experience like of seeing the wildfires in Australia? No, well, look, we did actually see your wildfires and and, and as well the wildfires in um, northern Europe, particularly across Siberia. Uh, and also in California, and it's a sign of things to come. And we ha- we also had massive fires. We call them bushfires, but they're the same thing in Australia. And I actually uh, lived part of the year outside of the city in an area which was directly affected, and I, I was one of the people that stayed, not so much to fight the fire, although we, we were prepared to do that, but essentially to try and um, safeguard the area and, and, and be around. Uh, so, I mean, for me, I've been involved in bushfires in all sorts of different ways in Australia. They're quite common. They're much more common than they would be in your country and our country. So we accept them as being a part of life. And our bush is designed in some ways to burn a bit. It's how um, Aboriginal people um, kept it regenerating. But the magnitude of these fires, the level of intensity, was on a scale completely unimagined. And even it was off the clock. And it went past what even the scientists had predicted because of the warmer weather that we had. And I was terrified, you know. I, I'm a pretty rational-minded person and, you know, don't mind jumping out of helicopters and doing all that stuff. And I'm not, one of the things I don't suffer is fear too much. I can be thankful for that. I was terribly scared. Um, not only at the, uh, the momentousness of what we were facing, which was essentially a massive pall of smoke, a, smoke, a fire band about 30, 40 kilometres wide, um, a whole internal weather system which had built up in front of us and was coming to us. Um, but the, 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 the sense that you had looking at it, that there was nothing on God's earth that you or any number of fire engines and planes dropping water and helicopters swinging buckets and anything else could ever do to stop this thing. And uh, we were lucky that the wind sort of went around the community that I'm in, but it did people, some people lost their lives, very few this time because uh, we basically got the officials got everybody out of the way soon. Plenty of loss of of property, terrible decimation of forests, shocking loss of um, our native wildlife. But for me, it was more like, oh my God, this the future has arrived. And some of the things that we've sung about and worked on was materializing in front of my eyes. And some I think of, some of the things we've sung about was materializing in front of my eyes. Mm. Yeah, and I think some of the things that people had lurking in their, 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 their background consciousness, I mean, let's be clear about this. If you're slightly aware of what's going on in the world, you know that we can't keep going on on this path. You know we have to limit global temperatures. You know you can't have the world can't become a blazing inferno. We have to do something about it. We, we all know that. Why aren't we doing it? Um, or why aren't we doing it quickly enough? And so I think that when you're right in the middle of that, setting and your your comments quite right that it opened up the eyes of many other Australians and I mean here's a here's a shocking thing to say I, I didn't want the rain to come in a way you know I mean I wanted the fires to stop but I didn't want the rain to come 
because I wanted us to realise that this event that we were experiencing, the economic loss, the social loss, um, the emotional loss, most important of all in some ways, will continue to suffer unless we change the way that we live, unless we don't allow fossil fuel industries free reign, unless we hold our politicians to account, no matter what, that they have to put in practice. The policies that are already there can all be done. It's not, not beyond our ken to reduce uh, and hold back climate uh, change to some extent. We can't hold it all back, as we know. And so I think, you know, it's been a really much more um, vivid, turbulent, emotionally challenging, intellectually sort of striking time than otherwise one might have expected at this stage of their career simply because of the scale of the climate crisis. More of my conversation with Peter Garrett on the balance of art and activism and actually whether the, a, a really refreshing conversation about whether those two can even be balanced after this. One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon and Time, is back for another round. This season, we're diving deep into some of McCartney's most beloved songs. Yesterday, Band on the Run, Hey Jude. And McCartney's favourite song in his entire catalogue, Here, There and Everywhere. Listen to season two of McCartney, A Life in Lyrics on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with the late singer of the band Midnight Oil, Peter Garrett. In the first part of our conversation, he opened up about what it was like to see the devastation of his own country, Australia, during the horrific wildfires back in 2019. In this part of our conversation, you're going to hear him talk about something that I, and I'm sure you, think a lot about, which is like, what do you hold on to for hope or for strength when you're facing something like the climate emergency? So Peter talks about that. He also talks about what it's like to be on the road with his band for the final time. That's when we taped this conversation. Here's part two of my chat with Peter Garrett. At the beginning of the interview, you said you said something along the lines of there's a global action happening. People are on the yeah. streets in a way that they weren't when, you, when Midnight Oil first started singing about these things. How is that for you? Does that help you get your eyes closed some nights? Yeah, it does. And I think, you know, I can see uh, a younger generation that are really coming through and saying they're simply not going to accept it. I can see generations of my own era turning around and going, well, hang on a minute, what sort of world am I leaving uh, to these people that are coming along. Uh, I can see people understanding that the capacity change is there and that we have the technologies to do it as well. Um, it's a race against time. And it's also a matter of, of holding uh, our political system to account in a very absolute and rigorous and, and, and utterly um, non-conditional way. You know, we're not playing games here. We, can, we cannot play Russian roulette with our future any longer. And I think once enough people sort of continue to be active and to produce the solutions and the pressures uh, that get us on that right pathway, then there is hope. There's always going to be hope. Uh, humans are incredible when we do things, when we really decide to do things together. Uh, and we need music to do it, but we actually need to, to, to join hands and arms and, and hearts and minds and get on with it. Well, let me reintroduce you here. Uh, Peter, Peter Garrett from Midnight Oil is my guest. And I'm aware that, I mean, you've been great and I, I love talking to you about this stuff, but I'm also aware that I'm talking to a man in a hotel room first on tour <laughs> and also a man on 
the final tour. Yeah. How are you with that? Well, I, I, I think it's, you got to know when to hold them. You got to know when to fold them. You know, um, you don't want to be the last person standing in the room. And I don't, I, I'm not talking about any Canadian bands in this respect, nor even about my own peers, but there's a point where, and we're, we're a very physical band and we take no prisoners on the stage. We like taking it right out to the end and keeping on going. And there's a point where you realise you're not going to be able to do that with as much sort of life energy and life force as you, as you did when you were a younger man. It's just, I mean, you do other things well and that's fine and we will do other things and hopefully we'll do them well. But, uh, but, but setting the stage, you know, uh, up and down and, and running around with it, it's not going to happen anymore. And I think I'm fine with it. I think it's the right thing for us to do as a band and I think we've resolved about it. It gives us an opportunity to share that experience with our audiences and maybe we'll get away, depending on COVID, to other parts of the world to do it. And we can do it while, you know, essentially we haven't become uh, those charadic type figures that you occasionally see lurking on stages, reliving their past glories. I mean, I'm thinking of the same ones you're thinking about, but we don't have to say any names, don't you know? Not no, really no names. names, no pack you, you could be like Mick Jagger, uh, uh, who does, what does he do? He runs backwards on treadmill, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, that's... Uh, it's interesting you should mention the Stones because, from as you would know, from for many musicians, but particularly for rock musicians, the Stones are always the light on the hill. You know, somehow in the cliched world of indulgence and excess, they managed mostly to survive, uh, and somehow they've managed to be a pretty good band over time. But the Stones should have stopped playing about a decade ago. There's no doubt about that. And I'm a Stones fan. You know, it's it's just it's silly now. Doesn't sound good. It looks ridiculous, and they're uh, they're. You know, it's up to them, of course. They've got every right to do it, and they're having fun. But no, thank you. Um, listen, I, w- I wanted to ask you one more thing. Um, I know you lost your bassist and longtime friend Bones Hillman to cancer in 2020. I'm sorry for your loss. Rather than uh, get someone to reflect on the loss of someone who is a musician to me, but a friend and and brother to you, I would just wonder if you could tell me a story about him. About Bones? Yeah. Oh, sure. Well, so Bones was the Kiwi, so he's from New Zealand, and uh, he was the joker in the band. He was the, the guy who was always a wisecracker, and um, he was someone who didn't take the whole thing too seriously, which was good because, as you can hear from this interview, <laughs> the rest of us do take things very seriously. So a funny story about Bones. Uh, you know what, there's quite a lot of them, but I've got to ring one out of my head very quickly and it's still relatively early in the morning. I think probably um, Bones deciding that when we were going to do um, a photo shoot for Rolling Stone US magazine, which incidentally we got bumped by the Simpsons in the end off off the front cover, (laughs) and we decided to wear our best agit rock, agit pop uh, outfits, Bones just put his clown face on and stood in the photo. So he actually knew himself very well. What did you know, run, What do you guys do in that moment? You're finally getting on the cover of Rolling Stone, and your and your bass player shows up in the clown makeup. Well, it's to, to, totally expected. And Bonesy, go watch it off. You know. But anyway, now look, he was really he was a funny guy. I can't think of anything funnier. No, that's great, of, man. I love that. Fans, fans will have funny stories, I'm sure. Well, listen, um, I'll, ask, I'll ask the big one here at the end. What What do you hope the legacy of the band will be? Oh, you know what, Tom, you've got to ask it. And uh, I don't really have a good answer for it because it's too close for us. And I think once you're starting to write your legacies or articulate them, you've gone one step further than you need to. It's up for others to judge. I do think one of the things 
though I, and I hope this applies for younger artists and, and younger bands in particular, is that you can do it your own way. You can literally write your rule book uh, if you're prepared to hang in and have that commitment to one another and have a commitment to the art, you know, for it to be as good as it possibly can be, then you can sort of choose your own um, journey through this thing. And I think if you choose your own journey, all the twists and turns and the ups and downs don't matter as much, you know. You've got the satisfaction of knowing that it's at least you making the decisions. And from that point of view, if that's our legacy, that you can make your own decisions and still succeed and survive uh, in the world of, of, of music and entertainment, well, then let it be. Lovely to talk to you. Hey, thanks for thanks for making the time for us. Hey, no worries, mate. All the best, Tom. From 1990, Midnight Oil with Blue Sky Mind. Before that, my conversation with Peter Garrett from the band Midnight Oil. That is it for this episode of Q. Uh, The other episode we have up today is my conversation with the filmmaker Lena Rodriguez. Her new film, So Much Tenderness, is about something you might be able to uh, relate to. The idea of having to leave your home, even if you can't relate to it, I'm sure you know someone who does, having to leave your home and settle somewhere else. You love where you are, but you don't feel that connected to it. And you also are losing the connection with the place that you're from. That in-betweenness is sort of the the linchpin of Lena Rodriguez's film. And she's here to talk about that experience in her own life. All right, go check that out. See you soon, later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.